realizes, he assesses the issues as only he could do, and he realizes that's really not the fundamental problem, how do you manage divorce. The fundamental problem is how do you understand marriage. And it's awesome when you stop and think about it. It's profound and amazing what God made and what God designed. And it was good to look at that. But the greatest tragedy is that what God made and what God designed and what God established for His own glory has been ransacked. That's the greatest tragedy. And again, as I said last time, we were in Matthew 19, verses 1 to 12, where we learned and we started learning about what Jesus says about marriage, what Jesus says about divorce, and what Jesus says about singleness. We're studying the, the Gospel of Matthew uh, as a church, so that's why we're talking about these issues. Jesus didn't shy away from these kinds of issues, um, and so we don't want to either, and so we're looking at Matthew 19. But this morning, as promised last time, uh, we're going to look at answering some of the questions that come out as a result of studying Matthew 19. Jesus says what he says about marriage, he says what he says about divorce, and, and that ends up surfacing lots of questions. Well, what about this, and what about that, and what about this other issue, what about this text in Scripture? And so this morning what we're going to do is work out some of those issues, or work on them on a broader level in Scripture. As far as an outline is concerned this morning, we'll look at five truth statements regarding divorce. Five truth statements regarding divorce that I believe summarize God's perspective. Five truth statements regarding divorce that summarize God's perspective on the matter. As we develop these five, I think we'll answer most of the questions, not all of them but we'll answer, at least start you on the right track of answering those questions that we have. And then next time, as promised last time, next time we'll do what I'm really wanting to do. Next time we'll talk about how to avoid a divorce. In other words, to put it in the positive, next time we'll talk about how to have a strong marriage, what the Bible says about a strong marriage. And we'll look at everything from 1 Peter to Matthew 19 to all these different passages. 1 Corinthians will be all over the place in the Bible looking at what the Bible says your marriage is to be if you're married or if you're going to be married someday. And so, in a sense, uh, the, the positive stuff comes next week. Um, and I can't wait for that. Uh, in, in a sense, it's already done. It didn't take me no. It took me no time at all to come up with a list of ten or so truth statements about marriage uh, that we'll want to look at and work on by the grace of God. But that will come next time. This morning, we'll look at this issue of divorce in particular. Maybe let's first, before we get into these five statements, let's talk about our methodology. In other words, how do we create an understanding of something and say this is what God says? What method, what approach should we take? And I think this is important whether it's this issue or any other issue. What's our methodology going to be? And I won't go into a lot of detail, but let me suggest that if we're trying to say this is what God says about something, this is what God decrees, this is what God's will is, let me suggest to you that it would be good and important for us to try the best we can to search high and low God's book, the Bible, 
the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, and take them all, to the best of our ability, take them all into consideration. You say, why are you emphasizing that? That seems pretty obvious. Well, it seems obvious, and I think that's what we would say we want to do, but there have been all kinds of people who have come in the history of Christianity or even in the, in the history of, of professing to know Yahweh, the one true God, where that hasn't happened. And so let's just remind ourselves that what we know we should do, we really should try hard to do. For example, the Samaritans. You probably have heard of the Samaritans if you've ever been to Sunday school class, or you've been in church very long. But you might not really know what was going on. You might not remember. The Samaritans sought to be faithful to God. But the Samaritans had a huge problem. One of the Samaritans' huge problems is they only believed part of the Bible to be true. Specifically, the first five books. The Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. And they rejected the rest of Scripture. Jesus settles it for us whether they were right or the um, Jews were right. They were Jewish as well, but of a different brand. The, 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 if you will, mainstream Jews who took the rest of the Old Testament to be true as well. In John chapter 4, and we won't go there, this is just quickly. And Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman and he sets the record straight when he makes it very clear that salvation is of the Jews. In other words, not of the Samaritans. They were wrong. Jesus confronts them for being wrong about a lot of things, but there's a big problem when you only selectively take part of the truth and you don't allow the rest of the truth to shed light on any one given matter. I bring it up because I'm afraid that sometimes we act like Samaritans. We're we're practical Samaritans because you know what I can do is I can find certain texts of Scripture that seem to fit my point as long as I don't look at the other texts of Scripture. And what I'm doing is I'm being like a practical Samaritan. What ends up happening, even though I don't mean to, I don't think you mean to either if this is what you do, what ends up happening is, if I'm only going to use part of Scripture and emphasize those and kind of ignore these, who's in charge? What I'm doing is I'm setting myself up practically to be the authority in the matter. And that's not a good thing. Now I'm saying this is, this is what I believe to be true. I'm going I'm to let God speak here and silence God here. And practically speaking, now I, I mean, it's like a form of idolatry because now I'm in charge. But I'm going to say this is all that God says. So again, I'm probably saying too much about it, uh, more than I need to. But just to remind you to work hard to try to say, if you're going to say this is what God says about something, take all of God says about the issue and work with all of the data before you come to your conclusion say, why do you have to do that? Why do you have to even mention that? Because again, sometimes you'll have a certain position on any theological matter, but divorce would be one of them, where there's a lot of emphasis placed on some passages and other passages are, in effect, ignored. Now, we won't look at every passage this morning, and I hope I'm not a practical Samaritan. But I trust we'll ha- we have looked at them. I have, and I'll give a fair representation of them. What we don't want to do is look at the passages that talk about God being a loving God. Therefore, He's okay with whatever you do. Or, and that's true, or we're going to to go to passages that talk about God hating divorce, and we will. 
and ignoring other passages that elaborate upon the matter further. We're going to try to look at everything and remember it all. That God is a loving God, yes, and He is forgiving God, yes, and He's also a God that hates divorce, and He's also a God that says other things about divorce. Trying to look at the whole perspective lest we misrepresent God. Number one, first truth statement regarding divorce that summarizes God's perspective. Divorce is the result of sin. Divorce is the result of sin. Had to be said, right? Might as well say it right away. Divorce is the result of sin. Some of you are thinking, I can't believe you led with that. I can't believe you started there. Some of you said to me last week as I even just read the passages and I didn't even get into the controversy. Some of you specifically said to me afterward, is that a hard, hard sermon to preach? I saw it was in the bulletin. I was surprised, you know, I, I, was, I was waiting to see what you were going to do. Is this hard? And I'll first of all say, yeah, it's hard because it's controversial. Absolutely. With as many divorces as we have in our country, it's a hard thing. But in the same breath, I'll say it's not hard because guess what? I'm a Christian Bible teacher. Christ talked about divorce. Thus, I will talk about divorce if I'm going to teach His Bible. And so it, it doesn't make sense for me to not do that. So, so it's easy in that sense. Let's look at what Bible the Bible says about it, what Christ says about it. It's not that hard. Well, he's going to make it clear that it came as a result of sin. In fact, you can go back to Genesis and you see that it comes as a result of sin. God sets up marriage to, to last a lifetime between a man and a woman. And we've got sin entering into the world. And from there on out, everything is messed up to one degree or another, including marriage. Go to Matthew 19, if you would. And we will see that Jesus comments on Genesis. So we'll get two birds with one stone. We'll... We won't have to go to Genesis because Jesus comments on Genesis. If you go to Matthew 19, verse 4, amidst the controversy, he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the, from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He's taking that right out of Genesis, so we're covering that as well. Verse 6, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And as we talked about last time, this is God's awesome, magnificent, splendid plan for marriage. That He didn't make us all exactly the same. That He made us so that we could complement each other. He made us so we could be together and and have relationships together. That it's going to be lasting and have a sense of permanence. And, and, And it just cries out, if you forget about the other stuff and the controversy and the sin, it cries out, God is great. I'm so glad I don't have to be alone my whole life and I can have companionship and I can have friendship and and, and He's going to bless above and beyond and give children. This is wonderful. This is splendid and magnificent. And I, I think if we don't see it that way, then, then we don't really see how how bad sin is that comes afterward. It's so wonderful. In fact, life was designed to be glorious and life was designed to be wonderful. And we're going to be here on this earth and everything is wonderful and beautiful and perfect. And then we get to Genesis 3. And then, and then everything falls apart, including marriage. Not entirely, not completely, because we have redemption and so on. Uh, but, but we have to, have to, have to, have to say, divorce is a result of sin. Absolutely. 
We wouldn't have, divorce isn't something that came about because we've evolved to the level of understanding that, you know what, it doesn't have to be for life. Divorce doesn't come as a result of just some independent, amoral, sociological event. It came as a result of sin. We have to say it. It's obvious. But it's almost like we're even afraid to even say that. Lest somehow we would think that divorce is somehow bad. It is bad. It came as a result of sin. Death is bad. It came as a result of sin. Adam and Eve didn't have to say, till death do us part. They weren't going to die. But everything gets turned on its head because of sin. How about because of our sin? We were in Adam. I'm not bringing ice to Eskimos, so we don't have to talk about this much more. It's pretty obvious this comes as a result of sin. But I think sometimes we forget it, we're afraid to say it. Let's just say it. This leads us to number two. If you thought I was blunt before, I'm really going to just go for it. Number two, divorce is hated by God. Divorce is hated by God. Malachi 2.16. Malachi 2.16. You can find it at the very end of the Old Testament. Some new Christians get Malachi confused with that great Italian theologian, Malachi. Um, It's Malachi. But find Malachi 2.16 and you'll see that God hates divorce. We have to take this into account. We can't ignore this. And by the way, it's natural for God to hate divorce. It's the natural thing for God to do because God is perfect and He created marriage to last a lifetime, to be wonderful, glorious, magnificent. And as a result of sin, it's not and it ends at times. It's an attack upon God's institution. It's an attack upon God's plan, God's perfect plan. Malachi 2.16 For I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. That's, that's the natural, knee-jerk, if you will, response to God. It's the right response, because He created marriage from the very beginning. It's not a good thing. How about that? Let's just say it. It's inescapable. Marriage isn't good. It's not good. That's why God hates it. Is it in Malachi 2.16? Okay. Marriage. Divorce. Sorry, thank you. God doesn't hate marriage. You'll have my resignation letter. (laughs) Thankful for technology. Now if I can just bribe the sound guys to actually take it out. (laughs) We won't get letters and emails from around the globe. Anyway. (laughs) You're searching. I'm thinking, is it really there? (laughs) Just tell me next time, Ed. (laughs) God says he hates it. Okay, then. Let's just acknowledge that divorce is not a good thing. It came as a result of sin. God justifiably hates divorce. All right. Let's start there. Let's not think God is indifferent toward divorce. Let's not think God doesn't care. Let's not think it's okay. It's not okay. God is not pleased with it doesn't matter what anyone else says about divorce, including this preacher. doesn't matter. You want to know God's feelings about divorce? God reveals in His Word that He hates divorce. Now, 
Does that mean, and this will lead us into number three, that God never allows divorce? Would that be logically inconsistent for God to hate divorce and allow divorce? No, it would not be logically inconsistent. God's plan, by the way, is life. Death comes. Would it surprise you if I told you, suggested to you, that God has even commanded divorce? Would it surprise you if I said God Himself has even divorced? Let me show you two places. Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 to 5. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. Let's include all of the data. God Himself has at times commanded divorce. God Himself has divorced. There's no logical inconsistencies with God. He can hate it, yes. And at the same time, He can require it in a unique situation. In a fallen world, He's working with everything that is fallen and touched by sin. He Himself can even... Divorce and hate divorce. He's working with a fallen world. It's not even inconsistent for this to happen. Ezra chapter 10, we're not even going to read the text. You should, I should have just told you to write it down. If you read verses 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, you will see God opting, if you will, for the lesser of two evils for His people who had sinned and intermarried with these pagans who did not belong to His nation, who they were not supposed to marry to. He requires through His prophet that they divorce those people. So let's get a little bit more comfortable with this idea that God can hate something and He can also call people to actually do it at a unique time. Let's also see, and I would like you to turn, if you would, to Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8. I'm just trying to develop and build a theology of divorce, if you will, so we can think rightly about it, so we can act rightly, so we can know how to deal, so we can know how to help. But in Jeremiah chapter 3, if you're new to the Bible, you can find the Psalms, which is roughly in the middle of your Bible, and start working to the right. Proverbs couple of small books, Isaiah and then Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 8, God Himself divorcing. Jeremiah 3, 8, And I saw that for all, that for all the adulteries of faithless Israel, I had sent her away and given her a writ of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she went and was a harlot also. What I'm not trying to do is lessen God's hatred for divorce. I don't think we can do that. We shouldn't do that. I'm not trying to remove guilt if you feel guilt justifiably so. But I'm seeking to present what God says about the issue. He hates it, and yet there's an allowance to the point where He even calls for it. And yet, He Himself has, if you will, divorced Israel. So whatever you're going to conclude about divorce, it has to take these things into account, which leads us to 
Number three, divorce is allowed by God under limited circumstances. Divorce is allowed by God under limited circumstances. Now again, it came as a result of sin. Number two, God hates it perfectly, as only God would. Don't take the teeth out of that. Let's not jump to number three quickly and say, you know what, God allows it, so you know what, everything's okay. No, there's allowance. But you've you got to know that God hates this thing called divorce. Number three, divorce is allowed by God under limited circumstances. Divorce is allowed by God under limited circumstances. That's the third truth statement I would like to offer to you. Now, to the surprise of some of you, I'm saying God allows for divorce. To the surprise of others, I'm saying it's in limited circumstances. So some of you want to shoot me over here, and others of you want to shoot me over here. Well, I'm wearing a flak jacket. (laughs) Trying to be biblical. Trying to think the way God would think about this. He does hate it. It did come as a result of sin, but He does allow it. He allows it under limited circumstances. Specific circumstances. And there are two of them specifically, I believe, in the Scriptures. And let me give you those two. The first one... New Testament allows for divorce in the case of sexual sin. Matthew 19, we saw it last time. Where there is sexual sin, God allows for divorce. You could call it a biblical divorce. A New Testament biblical divorce. And if you look at Matthew 19, in verse 9, you'll see, And I say to you, Jesus speaking, says, Whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The word that's used, I mentioned it in passing last time, is porneia, where we get pornography. Except for immorality, porneia. It's used in a very broad sense in the New Testament. It's used as a general word for sexual sin. It would be a broad umbrella that would include adultery. It would include um, premarital sex. It would, but not limited to, it would include uh, incest, it would include bestiality. It's God's general word for sexual sin. Matthew 5 basically says the same thing. If you wanted to go there, you'd see, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, the New American Standard translates it, but it's porneia again, makes her commit adultery. That's because it's assumed that she's going to remarry. And her marriage is not broken because of sexual sin. goes on to say, And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, based upon the immediate context, that's because she's divorced unbiblically. It's not broken and she's marrying someone else. Or he's marrying someone else. Now, let's talk about some objections to this. And I realize this is a little bit more classroomy than normal. We've got to work through these issues. God allows for divorce, Matthew 19, Matthew chapter 5, if there's porneia, sexual sin. There's a breach, there's a break, and there's an allowance for divorce. One objection is, but what about the other passages? What about Mark chapter 10? What about Luke chapter 16? 
What about those passages? What about them? You look at the passages and you see that he doesn't give the exception clauses in those passages. Well, why should we decide? Who are we to decide which passages we listen to and which passages we shouldn't listen to? How about, as one preacher said, God only has to say something once. And once he said it, it's true. Obviously, the writers are dealing with different issues, bringing out different emphases. The issue here is a particular issue, and Jesus speaks to the matter, except for porneia, divorce is sinful. But he says it here. Plus, remember this, as you deal with that argument, perhaps it's one you have or you hear when someone says, you know what, Um, actually we need to put the emphasis upon Mark and Luke and not Matthew. Well, maybe we're trying to seek the conservative high ground, but by doing that, do a little bit more research, we're probably borrowing from the methodology of the liberals who want to say Mark is the priority and you know, Matthew, what Matthew did, it's called Markian priority. It's a, a liberal religious theory. Mark is the priority. And then Matthew, you know what Matthew did? He, Matthew uh, theologized and molded and shaped. And he may have even borrowed from some other sources. And he molded and shaped. And what he did as a result of that, he said, this meets the needs of my people. That's called uh, dealing with redaction criticism. It's a liberal theory. Don't in the name of being conservative, taking the high ground and making Mark superior to Matthew, even though you don't mean to, act like a liberal. Because that happens sometimes. That's classic liberal theory. So we have to be careful with that. Another objection is, well, this is referring to people who are betrothed, something similar to engagement, and they're not actually married. This is a pretty strong argument that's used, saying, you know what, but Jesus wasn't talking about married people in Matthew 19 and Matthew 5. He was talking about people who were supposed to be married. They're betrothed. They're committed to one another, sort of like Mary and Joseph. But they weren't actually married. That's why there's an allowance. And we don't really have betrothal today, so it doesn't really apply to today. It sounds good. Some of you may have bought that hook, line, and sinker. The problem is, read Matthew 19. He's not talking about betrothal. He's talking about marriage. Look at Matthew 19 again. He's talking about marriage. There's no question about it. You see it from the start to the, to the end. If you only take Matthew 19 and you look at those passages, take the divorce stuff out. What is Jesus talking about? Betrothal? No. He's talking about marriage. You look at verse 6. What God has joined together, let no man separate. That's marriage. Verse 7. Look at that. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? This happened with wives. This didn't happen with people you were betrothed to be married to. Plus, you might want to mark this down for further study. What Jesus is is referring to in Matthew 19, the issue goes back, the debated issue with Moses is Deuteronomy 24. In Deuteronomy 24, the Old Testament root of this is not betrothal, it's marriage. And I'm getting a little bit worked up about it because people, people buy into this quick and they say, oh, this isn't even talking about marriage. It's absolutely talking about marriage. This is also a view that commonly says porneia only refers to premarital sex. 
Fact is, that doesn't withhold New Testament scrutiny and usage. It's used as a broad term. It even includes adultery. It includes all the sexual sins. It just doesn't hold up. It's also argued, another objection is this is referring to incest. And in the case of incestuous relationships, then there needs to be a divorce and it's allowable. Again, the problem is if you look at Matthew 19, it's not talking about incest. It's drawing upon Deuteronomy 24, which is talking about marriage. There are other objections, obviously, to these, and I won't try to trace all of them down. I suppose recent works on this issue, although I'm presenting what's been historically... um, The evangelical Protestant view, this isn't a view I've made up or this church has made up. I'm in great company on the view I'm presenting. But uh, probably the best thing I've read in print that's helpful to work through all the objections and ins and outs of all these things is a book called Ethics for a Brave New World um, by Feinberg and Feinberg. They have two chapters on this issue that will help you to to, to deal with the objections, both sides of it, and I find it to to be quite helpful. Well, okay, God allows for... Divorce, it's not a sin, even though divorce in general came as a result of sin. It's not a sin if there's sexual immorality. Let's put legs on that. If you're married to someone and they commit sexual immorality, there is a biblical allowance for divorce. Just how it is. There's another allowance for divorce. Number two, the New Testament allows for divorce in the case of abandonment by an unbeliever. Abandonment by an unbeliever. 1 Corinthians 7 is the passage that deals with that. If you go ahead and turn there, that would be great. 1 Corinthians 7. We're trying to develop a Christian worldview so we think like Christians, we think Christ's thoughts after Him. It's practical because we live in a world filled with divorce. We live in a world, how about this, where marriage is tough, even in a great marriage? Put two sinners in a house together and say, stay there forever. (laughs) That's hard. Even as redeemed people, as saved people, it's hard. You need to know what your responsibility is, how we should think through these things, what we're allowed to do and not allowed to do. Number two, the New Testament allows for divorce in the case of abandonment by an unbeliever. Look at verse 10, or verse 10 of chapter 7, if you would. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord. He's not saying this isn't important. He's, he's saying this is something the Lord didn't talk about. It's not addressed. It's not elaborated upon that the wife should not leave her husband. All right, there you have it. But if she does, by the way, based on verse 10, she's not supposed to. It would be an unbiblical divorce. But if she does leave, if there's a case where that's happened, even in the way it's stated grammatically, if there's a case where that has already happened, you've done the wrong thing, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and that the husband should not divorce his wife. And I do not believe he's offering this as, a, as an option. You can say, well, what I'll do is I'll just divorce them and never get married again. Even the way it's grammatically stated, this is something that's already happened. You've already done the wrong thing. 
And notice reconciliation is what is best. That's what should be sought in this case. Then verse 12, but to the rest I say, not the Lord. Again, this isn't something uh, that, that he elaborated upon. I'm adding to that. But remember, he's an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And under inspiration, he's adding legitimately that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. There's a sanctifying effect in your family. Stay married to that unbeliever. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. One thing that he's getting at is don't, don't, don't go to, to, to uh, that Old Testament prophet where God required and called for divorce in that unique instance. And think, well, he did it there, so that's what I'm going to do. Because you know what? I've, I've gotten saved. And, and my spouse is not saved. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to, get, I'm going to get a divorce because that's what God would want me to do. And perhaps some Corinthians were even doing that. And he's saying, no, don't do that. You know, stay as you are. You're, you're married to that unbelieving woman or that unbelieving man. What you need to do is you need to stay in that relationship because God may use it and, have, and it'll have a sanctifying effect. You'll, you'll bring God's Word into that family. You'll bring a positive influence for the greater glory of God and your kids might get saved, etc. That's the idea. Stay as you are. But, verse 15 is what we wanted to look at. If they leave, let them leave. You're not under bondage. God has called you to peace. It's pretty straightforward. Stay if they're, if, if they're willing. But if they're not, you don't need to have some sort of guilt that you shouldn't have. Then, then you're free. And, and the, the, if they hate you because you love Christ and there's created all this turmoil in that relationship because of your devotion to Christ and they leave, then, then, then let them go. Two reasons for a biblical divorce. Sexual unfaithfulness allows it. Abandonment by an unbeliever allows it. And as soon as I add a third, I think I've, I think I've stepped out of the bounds of what the Scripture says. So I can't do it. I'm not going to do it. As soon as a Christian... Pop Icon says, if you have two people that are not thriving in a healthy situation, I say, remove the marriage, let them heal. I have to say, what you just did, Miss Christian Pop Icon, is set yourself up to be God. Because God hasn't said that. We don't want to play God. He made us. He can make the rules. All right, God. There are two allowances. I'll preach that. I'll live that. I'll believe that. I'll submit to that. And that's what I would urge you to do as well. As far as some application regarding this is concerned, as if this isn't applicable, this doesn't mean it's going to be easy. The Bible hasn't told us that. Some of you have got a pretty tough road to hoe in your marriage. 
I only know about some of them. I can't say I understand. I can't say because I understand I can help you. But what I can do is I can point you to Christ and I can point you to Him and I can point you to suffering saints like the Apostle Paul who suffering in a different situation would, would plead with God ongoingly, help, take it away. Some of you do that. And God's response in that particular case is, no, I'm not going to take it away. But God, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, said to the Apostle Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, because power is perfected in weakness. And I'm not just trying to throw a Bible verse on your problem, but that's where life really is. The Apostle Paul is really having a problem. He's really going before the Lord. It is really hurting him. And he's pouring his heart out to God. Please take it away. And in that particular instance, though God may have taken it away, God, and according to his own good pleasure and the, for the benefit of, benefit of Paul, says no. That might be your road. But you've got to know that if you are in Christ and you are a believer, God promises you that His grace is sufficient for you and you can endure. And the great thing is you don't have to endure alone and we could go off on a whole other tangent and I won't, but there's a, it's called fellowship. It's called bearing one another's burdens. It's called weeping with those who weep. That's one of the things the body of Christ is for. I would also say, by way of application, I would like to say that even though there are two allowances, those aren't two commands. The Bible doesn't command you to get a divorce if your wife has been unfaithful. And the, wife, and the Bible doesn't command you to get a divorce if your husband has been unfaithful. I've never told someone to get a divorce, nor do I ever plan to tell them to get a divorce. At the same time, what I don't want to do as a pastor is hide the truth from you and never present it as a biblical option. Because now again, I'm playing God. I want to lovingly, carefully, affectionately say, this is what God says, let us help you through the situation, and here are your options. And sometimes this omelet gets so scrambled that it's really tough to unscramble. But God's grace is sufficient for us too, and we work through it. What are the factors involved? One thing that's happened and that happens the longer you're a Christian and the more you see sin and the more, the more you see the ugliness of it and the more you see how complicated things are, you do end up saying, yes, sin is ugly. It messes everything up. The effects upon kids, the effects upon people, the effects upon their emotions, the effects upon their vitality in life and everything else. Sin is messed up. And the effects of divorce end up being messed up. But that doesn't mean there isn't a way to deal with it. It doesn't mean there isn't hope because there always is for the believer. Number four, we need to wrap this up. Number four, divorce may or may not allow for remarriage. I can cover this quickly. Divorce may or may not allow for remarriage. This is pretty clear cut in my opinion. If it's a biblical divorce, it allows for remarriage. If it's an unbiblical divorce... 
there's not an allowance for remarriage. Matthew chapter 5 would be the place to go, and I will ask you to go there, because some would want to say, yes, there can be a biblical divorce, but there never could be remarriage. And I believe that with sexual immorality, there's a breach in the relationship, and there is freedom. Matthew chapter 5, if you just quickly go there. I don't know about you, but I can't wait for next week. (laughs) These heavy things. You know what? This wouldn't be heavy either if this was just an academic setting where this didn't affect any of us. The fact is, it affects all of us in one way or another. I think, man, I hate divorce too. Well, we've got to work through it. What does God say? We don't want to set ourselves up as the authority. It's burdensome. Remarriage would be allowed. Matthew chapter 5, verse 32. And I'm going to ask you to take something out. This is specifically dealing with people who would say there's no allowance for remarriage. Well, let's do this exercise together. Matthew 5, 32. We're going to take something out. We're going to take the exception out. And then we'll put it back in. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, leave the exception out for a minute, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Why would he say that? He would say that because the assumption is you're going to remarry. I don't know of anybody who would really disagree with that. That's the assumption there. He assumes that if you divorce your wife, unbiblically or not, you're going to make her commit adultery, not because she stays single, but because she's going to get married to somebody else. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. See, it's assumed that there's going to be remarriage. Now put the exception back in. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity or pornea, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. See, there's an allowance. If there's an allowance for divorce, there's an allowance for remarriage. It's tied to Matthew 5. I think it's pretty simple and straightforward. Others do not. I have friends who would disagree boldly with my perspective on divorce and remarriage. Who are believers and we agree to disagree. But I think if you take away all the arguments and you take away all of the things you don't see in the Bible, like, well, that's really talking about um, betrothal, If you look at the data of Scripture, the simplest, therefore the most profound conclusion is there's an allowance and it's twofold. And that allows for divorce and remarriage. It's unfaithfulness sexually and it is abandoned by an unbeliever. It's the straightforward conclusion. It's the simple conclusion. It doesn't demand some outside understanding of something. Number five, finally, I love this one and ending on this one because it's an important one that you need to hear and I need to hear. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Now, who would ever say that it is? That's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You know what? Unfortunately, no one would, but sometimes we act like it is. I know people who treat unbelievers or or people who were divorced as unbelievers with disdain because they were divorced as unbelievers. 
That is crazy. God hates divorce, yes. Psalm 5 says God hates unbelievers. And guess what? (laughs) All of us would fit under that category at one time or another. And we're saved and redeemed, and we were the enemies of God, and we're reconciled to Him, and all sins are forgiven. And then we act toward the unbeliever who's been divorced and then gets saved as if somehow they've done something that God's going to hold against them forever. This is crazy. Or believers who have biblical grounds for divorce are somehow second-class Christians? I don't think so. What does the Bible say? Got to just say, okay, this is what it says. We're going to be good with what it says. Now, where there's an unbiblical divorce, what should we do? We should deal with it biblically like we would deal with any other sin. Take it seriously. We would. We do. Unbiblical divorce, sin, better deal with it as such. Biblical divorce, biblical grounds, you know what? We'll deal with it as such, which is, by the way, to not flinch, to go help the person and love them, because they're going through a hard time. But I think we really do need to think through how we act toward people who've been divorced. Think through with it. Think, think through this with me just briefly. Not a Christian, divorced, becomes a Christian. Quite frankly, that has nothing to do with anything. Apostle Paul's a Christian killer. Yeah, but that's not as bad as divorce. It doesn't make any sense. Okay, we're going to deal with somebody else who is a Christian, who has biblical grounds for divorce, and goes ahead and exercises their right to do that because that's what they think is best based upon lots of reasons. And now I'm going to somehow treat them differently because God hates divorce? Yeah, God does hate divorce. And I'll bet they would agree that God hates divorce. But He has allowed for them to get divorced and remarried. We're going to treat them with love and concern and compassion. Or, or, or then that third category, I suppose, is the last category. You have a professing believer who divorces unbiblically. And we're going to say, you know what, it's no big deal because, you know, we're under grace and everything's fine and God doesn't really care. No, we're not. That's a sin. We've got to deal with sin. We've got to push for repentance and reconciliation. But upon repentance and reconciliation, guess what? Repentance and reconciliation means repentance and reconciliation. There are more issues, I know. But at least gets us started trying to think through these things. And I hope it's been helpful. And I hope it sets a good foundation for us to launch into How do we avoid this thing? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for an exercise like this. And I certainly know, as many do, that there are far more issues than these issues. And it does testify to the ugliness of sin and the complexities of sin. And yet at the same time, Lord, isn't it great that you, according to your infinite wisdom, have chosen to save sinners who committed all different kinds of sins. Not just divorce. Give us new life and give us hope. Lord, help us even as a church to try to seek a biblical balance. Not winking at sin. But not somehow trying to be more hard-lined than you are because somehow that would make us more faithful. That wouldn't make any sense either.
And Lord, for those who are struggling this morning, even thinking about divorce, I would pray that they would think through what You have had to say about this. They would seek godly counsel to understand Your Word. And You would lead them and guide them to follow Your plan as recorded in Your Word. Lord, for those folks who've been divorced, even unbiblically, Lord, lead them to repentance where that needs to happen and restoration. Even use us in their lives to help them to move on and not have to have guilt linger above their heads forever. There just is not a need for that. Lord, thank You for Your grace and thank You for Your mercy that even allows us to take our next breath. We love You, Lord. In Jesus' name, Amen.